0: I'm Jeff Murphy from Boston University Alumni Relations, and I'm your host for an interview series showcasing the career paths of our most interesting and accomplished alumni. Welcome to the Proud to Be You podcast. My guest today is U.S. Ambassador to the African Union, Mary Beth Leonard. Upon receiving her degree in economics from the College of Arts and Sciences in 1984, Ambassador Leonard went on to earn master's degrees from both Johns Hopkins and the U.S. Naval War College. Throughout her distinguished career in public service, Ambassador Leonard has served in economic and diplomatic posts in Cameroon, Namibia, South Africa, and Mali, just to name a few. While on a recent trip to Djibouti, she took time out of a very busy schedule to join me on the podcast to explore her extraordinary career and reflect on her journey beyond BU. Ambassador Mary Beth Leonard, thank you so much for making time in your schedule to be on the Proud to BU podcast. I'm really excited to speak with you today.
1: I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: If I'm understanding correctly, you are in Djibouti today. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what uh, what your trip to Djibouti is all about?
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm here for an East Africa security conference. And so it's basically the bilateral ambassadors from East Africa and me and my role as ambassador to the AU uh, getting together with some of our counterparts from uh, from the State Department in Washington and uh, officers here at the at the at the military command to talk about the direction of Africa policy.
0: Well, I certainly want to spend some time talking about all the amazing work that you've been doing over the years in Africa. But uh, in order to get us started, I, I kind of want to, you know, um, search your origin story. Did you grow up dreaming of foreign service and, and, and helping uh, other nations as an ambassador or how did that play out for you?
1: Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say grew up dreaming of that. I mean, I in uh, high school, I was pretty good at French. And I remember having, you know, conversations with myself about what I might possibly do with that. I can remember um, sitting in the break room at high school at some point with one of my friends looking at the, the foreign service exam, the State Department recruiting brochure about the content of the foreign service exam. And, and he and I were reading the sample questions. It's like, oh, we could so pass this test. And actually, I think when I was in high school, that was far from true. But luckily, it turned out to be true several years ago years later. Um, and so I was, I was very pleased to launch a diplomatic career.
0: And I, one of the reasons I was excited to chat with you is I know you are originally from Worcester. I grew up uh, just outside of Worcester. So I've got some central mass pride that I'm, I'm guessing you have as well. Were your, were your parents sort of globally minded or did you, did you, were you raised in a family to sort of think about that? Or is it really just kind of that experience you had in high school and, and your, your passion for languages?
1: No, I, w- I wouldn't say that we were a globally minded family. I think it may be that I was the first person in my, my family to have a U.S. passport um, when I went as a, as a high school musician on a trip to Ireland with uh, a bunch of high school musicians from around the town. Um, I'm, I'm the granddaughter. Uh, what, one of my four grandparents was a, a direct immigrant from Italy. And I think growing up, it was there was sort of this idea that one had left behind a, a foreign incarnation uh, to have a new start here. And so it was the, the emphasis was very much on, um, on the United States.
0: So in in high school, you already have a passion for French. Um, How did you end up at BU? What what, what were some of the other things on the table and and how did you end up on COMAF?
1: I would say probably the biggest factor that got me to COMAB was that I got a really great financial aid offer offer from DU. I was sort of looking. There's a a, there are a wide variety of uh, universities in my hometown in Worcester, as you're aware. And you know, my father's kind of default. He's a very practical man. Was oh, there are all these good you know colleges here. Why would you need to go away? And then you know, it wasn't so far away. It was only you know an hour down the road. uh, But there was a, a really lovely offer, and I was anxious for the opportunity to flee my home for the big city, and so. So to BU, I came.
0: And so I definitely want to talk about your experience as an undergrad. Um, where did you live on campus?
1: My first year, uh, stereotypically, I was in Warren Towers, I think on the 14th floor, and I think it was the A Tower. Sophomore year, I was in La Maison Francaise on Bay State Road. Ah. Uh, Junior year, I studied abroad before BU had their own study abroad programs. Actually, uh, on the International Student Exchange Program in Grenoble, France, and then senior year, um, I was living in Chestnut Hill as an O pair with some uh, some BU faculty.
0: Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Um, so obviously you, you got really involved in the French house as a sophomore. Were there other student organizations, language based or not, that you got involved with that played a role? And, you know, wh- where were you hanging out as a student? Where were you spending your time?
1: Yeah, I mean, the 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 Maison Française, I think, had a lot of uh, had a tendency to hang out with the like the international house and the other language themed houses. So that sort of put me in a path uh, to hang around with a lot of international students. Um, uh, You know, Bay State Road, the sophomore year, was a a pretty magical place to be. I still have fond memories of uh, my room actually looked out on the intersection, you know, where the president's office is, onto Bay State Road, and you know, the first snowfall of the season, and everybody running outside and having a snowball fight at 2 a.m. Though it's a So it was a a fun
0: time. Obviously, you've got this passion for French. But if I'm if I'm reading our records correctly, you actually ended up majoring in economics. How did you decide to, to do economics with the French minor?
1: Well, see, I actually had room to do um, a double major in, in French and in economics. My, my original interest in economics was that I felt like I should have something to accompany a foreign language skill, that there should be another core skill that went with it. I realized I would have time to do uh, a double major, but it would have required taking two more courses out of a selection of, I don't know, 15th, 16th, and 17th century French. And really, I kind of just wanted to talk, <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> So, so I stuck with the, 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 the French minor. And it was through studying economics that I realized that I found most interesting in that sphere, development economics. So, you know, my little brains so was like, well, you like development economics and you speak French, so maybe you ought to look at Africa. Um, and that's basically, you know, the first choice that led to the series of choices of, of how I got into this line of work.
0: So even at, as an undergrad at BU, you already had an interest in Africa or did that come later?
1: Yeah. I, so basically I by the time I came back from studying abroad in, in France where obviously you know met a lot of African students as well I began to put those two dots together um, and so I took in the fall semester I took I don't remember which was which but anyway I took one course in African history since 1865 and then another course on the Af- the economic development of Africa um, even back in the dark ages of the early 1980s the um, BU had a pretty impressive um, Africa Africa focused faculty uh, and so I began to get into some of the meat- meat of it and decide that I was really fascinated by the continent.
0: And looking back, were there other classes or or specific faculty members that still stand out to you as having a, a real impact on you when you were at BU?
1: Yeah, for not having been a, a French major, I, I very much uh, appreciated the, the the leadership in the in the French department. It was a very welcoming and and uh, congenial crowd. Um, and then, of course, you know, I my uh, the family that I was staying with the uh, the mom was uh, in my senior year. The mom was the director of the study abroad office. That was my work study job. Um, and the dad the dad was the the dean of CLA. Um, so I get to you know be exposed to a lot of people and the conversations in their home about uh, about a broader world.
0: So I know you graduated in '84, and then. Uh- uh, if I um, have your history right, you ended up going to Johns Hopkins after that. How did you make that decision to, to continue your education?
1: So when I first got out of college, I got a job with the Defense Department as an analyst. So I was living in the D.C. area. And one of the nice things about federal government employment um, is that they had a I assume they still do, but at that point, they had very good um, tuition benefits. And so I was able to begin part-time study at Hopkins. At that point, as I was looking at a graduate school, I was looking at the University of, of international relations programs in the D.C. area. And what distinguishes the Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies program is that it has sort of equal weight on the need to have economic competence as well as a regional specialty or a functional specialty. So since I had so prized economics in my education, I was particularly attracted to that program. Uh, So I began part time. It's a good thing that you work full time and go to school part time when you're young, because it was a really exhausting schedule. And then Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to um, get a fellowship to go finish up my second year, uh, the second half of the the curriculum full time um, and graduated from Zeiss in 88.
0: And so right after graduation, you're back with the State Department, right?
1: Yes, I had incurred an obligation to the federal government in general, although not to any agency in particular. So I was able to transfer that obligation and uh, basically, you know, graduated whatever day it is in May or June that you graduate and began in the Foreign Service on June 13th. Uh, So it's 1988. So it worked out very well.
0: I think I read an article uh, that you were quoted in just saying how challenging it is to be accepted to the foreign service. I wonder if you could tell, I I, I know we have so many students and alumni that would be interested in that topic. What's it like to interview with the State Department and, and what advice do you have for people about who are interested in going through that process?
1: Oh, you're, I'm a good person to ask that question because I spent a year as the diplomat in residence, uh, for New England and, and, had this conversation with all kinds of students. Um, so basically the getting into the Foreign Service is a multi-step process, which begins with a, um, uh, a written exam. I cannot finish this interview without saying the words www.careers.state.gov. Um, it's, uh, it, that is the State Department website that has, for example, a practice exam, uh, consisting of old exam questions. There's an app that you can, uh, play with to answer old exam questions. I think that this is actually the State Department's gift to students everywhere because it is a fabulous vehicle, that website for procrastination. Um, And heaven knows every student needs that. So you begin with a, a written exam. If you make it through that, we ask you to write an essay explaining why you how you embody the qualities that we search for. And we can talk a little bit about what those are. Um, And then if you make it past that hurdle, there's a half day or more um, oral assessment. uh, And and then based on that, you get on a register and a, X number of people are hired um, every year off of that register. So it's a lengthy pro- process. It's a very um, competitive process But as I used to say to people when I was recruiting, it's also a process for which you can look ahead and, and make life decisions that will help make you more competitive uh, for what it is that we search for. And we, we very much encourage people to, to, to think about that.
0: So your first full-time work following grad school, that's when you first moved to Africa, right?
1: I, my first tour was in uh, Yaoundé, Cameroon. And talking about things coming full circle, uh, the, uh, the deputy chief of mission is the number two person in the embassy. And my second year in, in Yaoundé, the deputy chief chief of mission was Tibor Naj, who was just sworn as, as assistant secretary for African affairs a couple of months ago. So I had this fun conversation, email conversation when he got nominated. It was like, Tibor, I don't know about you, but circa 1990, I'm not sure that I was thinking Mary Beth and Tibor, ambassador and assistant secretary, but isn't life wonderful?
0: And so, can you walk us through sort of the next, you know, decade of your career? I, I know you spent time, I believe, in Namibia and Togo as well.
1: So, uh, your first two assignments in the Foreign Service are, are directed. Um, the entry level division uh, says where you will you, where you will go. Every new Foreign Service officer. Spends at least part, if not uh, of their first two tours, doing uh, consular work. That's helping American citizens abroad, um, I- issuing or denying uh, immigrant and non-immigrant visas. Um, and Namibia was a really fun time to get there. I arrived only uh, five or six months after independence, so there was you know the the, the long process of extricating Namibia from uh, a internationally contested claim by South Africa to the ability to rule that country. So there was a great deal of energy and enthusiasm and it was a very fun time to be there. Um, after that, I went uh, back to the United States and worked in something called the Operation Center, which is a 24-hour-a-day briefing and alerting uh, mechanism. Uh, so that's great fun. You sort of keep up on the news, and uh, when something happens in the world, and if it's, if it's the middle of the night or even in the daytime, you let the people in the State Department who have a dog in that fight or have an interest in that issue uh, to let them know that something has occurred. And then I worked as a desk officer in the Office of Central African Affairs, um, at first, I was responsible for Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea. Um, and then later, because I'm that old, I was desk officer for Zaire. It was still Zaire. A desk officer is basically sort of the, the worker bee of bilateral relations. You know, you uh, write the briefing memos, you write the press guidance, a foreign, foreign official is coming to the United States, who in the United States government should they meet? Uh, what sorts of topics will they be interested in talking about? Um, it's, a, it's a really fun job.
0: So I'm curious to, as you reflect back on those first few tours, um, what are the, what's the, what are the things that you did either project based or otherwise that you're really proud of that you, that stand out in your career? And then also were there, you know, hard lessons that you learned along the way that, you know, really helped shape the rest of your career?
1: Yeah, I mean I think you know, one of the when you join the Foreign Service it's a it's an interesting transition. I mean, it's a very different lifestyle. And that's why we stress some of the personal qualities that we do in the recruiting process. We have something that you would find on www.careers.state.gov um, called the 13 dimensions, which are the personal qual- qualities that we believe uh, would prep, prep you for success in the diplomatic service. So I used to joke that I always felt like kind of like a cult leader talking about 13 dimensions, but it's things like oral and written communication skills, objectivity, good judgment, adaptability. Um, did I already say objective? Go look at the website. You can see the other seven. <laughs> but basically, it's 13 qualities that taken together, describe someone who you can take and put someplace where they don't belong and figure it out and do sensible things and and, and take up take up your role um, and so that's a um, that's a bit of a, a leap when you first get there because then you are being thrown into a place where you don't belong and you need to figure it out um, I think the process gets uh, easier the longer you're in the Foreign Service because while you're moving from culture to culture and from job to job uh, insofar as you move from one overseas place to another you're still in the construct of a US embassy and US embassies work the same way all over the world. So there's a there's a chunk of your life that's kind of plug and play um, in, in terms of, you know, who works in an embassy, what different types of positions are, 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 are populated. Um, and then there's the, the individual portfolio of what is our relationship with this particular country um, and how do we advance U.S. interests? How do we protect American citizens, uh, promote American business, uh, engage in the relationship of the United States with this particular country?
0: One of the questions I wanted to ask you that's maybe not so much related to, well, I guess it is related to your career, but are there challenges that the foreign service faces in Africa that maybe other people working in foreign service in other continents or countries don't run into? What Are, are there unique challenges as uh, somebody working in Africa?
1: I, I would say that probably in Africa we have uh, more hardship posts than in, in other parts of the world. So you know the uh, the ability to uh, learn how to organize yourself uh, to, to to exist in that environment. I think you know the uh, every place in the world is, is 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 interesting. You know you get there and it's your function in life to learn how to I don't know kind of wire this country to understand how it works so that when an American citizen gets in trouble, you know where to refer them to something or you know where they are and what circumstances they might be facing. Or when an American business uh, you know, is, is, is facing a challenge in competition or, or trying to figure out who they should speak to in order to, uh, to advance their interests. So the idea is to sort of insert yourself um, in, in this environment, figure it out so that you can help uh, uh, American interests and also the conduct of foreign policy, the sharing and receiving of information uh, between two countries. Um, I think the, for me, you know, if you, you asked me a minute ago about, you know, something that I was proudest about, uh, when I was ambassador in Mali, uh, we had a, uh, one of my most cherished successes was in um, succeeding in Organizing the extradition of a Malian national who had murdered a US government employee in Niger about 10 years earlier. Um, uh, And basically, he had been in jail in Mali and escaped, and then he'd been in jail in Niger on charges related to crimes against some Saudi nationals. Um, And during the unrest in the Sahel that attended that period of about 2012, 2013, there was a big prison break in Niger, and he ended up back in Mali and in, in custody uh, of the Malians as they, along with the French, did security operations in the north of Mali. So Mali is a country that typically you know, does not extradite its citizens. It's, it's It doesn't have that provision um, in its law. And sort of working the relationships that I had with the justice minister and with the government, uh, we worked really hard over a four-month period and succeeded in a first-ever in Africa, or maybe even first-ever internationally, use of a um, uh, an international Treaty on the Status of Protected Persons, because the guy who had been murdered in in, in Niger was a was a diplomat, um, and and got him extradited to justice in the United States, where he faced trial in New York. Um, so it was something that I, I took very personally. I mean, the the it was someone from the defense attaché's office who was killed, and a Marine security guard um, was was injured. They had been out for dinner in Niamey, and in a carjacking, um, ended up being killed by the the the, the would be carjacker. And so you know, I knew. Who in my embassy were the equivalent personalities. And I could just imagine how devastating it would be to have your staff go out to do something as human as enjoy a meal together and come to that kind of end. So um, I was really, really grateful that we were able to, to pull that off a team effort with uh, with FBI and with DOD and with law enforcement in, in, uh, in the United States um, and the embassy.
0: That's an incredible story. I have to say, I, I don't mean to boil it down to this, but I could see the movie playing out in my head as you're telling me this story. It's incredible. <laughs> I wonder if you have a future as a, you know, you you must have a book in you at some point i wonder, we'll get we'll get <laughs> to that later but i if I'm, i don't know if i've got my timeline correct but you were also in Mali during a coup is that right
1: yeah. I served in Mali twice from 2006 to 2009 as West as a uh, deputy chief of mission, the number two person. And then I was West Africa director for two years. And then I was ambassador from uh, 2011 to 2014. So I, you know, had a credible contender for the title of Sahel Girl. Um, but the, the yeah, uh, I arrived back in Mali in November of 2011. And in the early part of 2012, uh, there was a... a Basically, an an army mutiny that was glommed onto for political purposes and turned into a coup. Um, And it was a it was a very very difficult time. You know, there was a coup, there was a counter coup attempt that happened from a military base very close to the embassy, and a bunch of us got trapped in the embassy for a couple of days, and you know, had to sleep there—a situation that the foreign service refers to as embassy suites. Um, And then um, there was a taking advantage of the chaos in the north of Mali. Foreign-based extremists teamed up uh, with with rebels to basically cause the fall of Northern Mali to, to Muslim extremists, um, and which triggered a. Eventually, there was a. They, they began to do a, a faint south towards Bamako, which uh, triggered a military intervention by the French. Uh, followed by a West Africa intervention and finally a, a, a UN operation uh, to help bring Mali back to some semblance of, well, past elections and attempts to systematically address um, the variety of security challenges that confronted it. So it was a, it was a, a, a very tough few years. Um, the diplomatic corps in, in Mali, we referred to 2012 as the longest year of our lives. Uh, we referred to 2013 when the Bad guys fainting south, the French military intervention, the UN um, operation, elections, inauguration. 2013 was the fastest year of our lives.
0: So then after that, you came home for a while. You you mentioned you were a diplomat in residence based out of Tufts University. Did any of that that tough year, I mean, I, I can only imagine that was something you considered when President Obama asked you to be the ambassador to the African union. How was that a tough decision for you to make? Or was it something that you immediately said, of course, I'll do it?
1: oh, I said, of course, I'll do it. And, and you know, look at my resume. So, I mean, I started in the, in the Foreign Service in 1988. I had two years in Cameroon, two in Namibia, back in the United States for two and a half years working on Central African affairs. Then I was in uh, Cape Town for four years. No, that's not true. I was in Lome for two years. Then I was in Cape Town for uh, for four years. My um, um, one out of Africa tour was in Suriname, you know, twice in Mali. So basically, you know, a couple of decades of experience working on Africa issues. And the idea that you could go from the, the EU student who used that educational opportunity to first learn about Africa and figure out that you know, your language set fit that bill to ending up being the person who directs the U.S. relationship with the most important multilateral um, uh, organization on the continent, well, that was hard to pass up.
0: So um, you've, uh, you obviously have dedicated your career to helping build a, as I think you've put it, um, I saw a video that you had put up on Facebook, a, a peaceful and prosperous Africa. If you as the ambassador to the African Union could wave your magic wand and, and make some things happen for the African Union, what, what would those changes be? What would you want to see?
1: Well, first of all, the um, uh, you know the if you're going to talk about what the African Union does in one sentence, you would say that they exist to amalgamate and disseminate best practices, whether it's on peace and security or agricultural development or health or whatever. Um, and so, if that's their one sentence job description, my one sentence job description is to help make them be better at doing that. Uh, so we support uh, a lot of those efforts. You know, try to uh, share best practices, uh, support their efforts in in those various areas. Um, I think it's a re- Actually, a really exciting time, in particular on the economic front, uh, for, for for Africa. The the continent is about to, or is on, on a path to, uh, ratify a continental uh, free trade agreement, uh, with the with a very specific goal of better economic regional integration. You know, so that that Africa can trade more with itself, become a more compelling presence on the on the world trade stage. At the same time, the United States just um, evolved, just invoked two very important tools uh, for helping Africa in that way. One is uh, the BUILD Act, uh, which is something that has created a, a financial development corporation or will October 1st of 2019, uh, which doubles the budget that the United States has uh, to uh, do political risk insurance, uh, adds the ability to take um, uh, equity stakes in in investments. And so sort of gives uh, targeting lower income and lower middle income countries, i.e. a lot of Africa, emerging markets, targeting them to um, make themselves more attractive for U.S. businesses to help them come and and grow and and, and integrate regionally. So I think it's a very, uh, and the second thing is uh, uh, an authority for the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which does sort of, on average, like $395 million projects in infrastructure sorts of things. So we have two really new important tools uh, to help Africa in its efforts to, uh, to build infrastructure, um, uh, integrate uh, economically, regionally. Uh, so I think it's an exciting time on the, on the trade, investment and economic front for, for the United States and for Africa.
0: I think I mentioned earlier, I know you were back on campus in uh, just a year ago or so um, at the party school for global studies, meeting with some students and faculty, uh, reflecting on your, so, you know, your decades of experience in Africa, what kind of advice do you have to share with you know, students who are curious about careers in foreign service? And uh, I realize that's sort of asking you to boil down, you know, several decades of, of service, but what are, what are those things that you might share with folks who ask you about that?
1: You know, the way that I opened my discussion with the students that day was to point out that my path towards an international career began the day that I packed up uh, from La Maison Française, went home and 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 got a job to save a little money, and then went off and studied abroad. And I went step through step through. You know, it's it's not as if I don't think that there's sort of one lightning moment necessarily that determines the future of your career, but I think that there are a lot of individual decisions that make you competitive uh, for for the foreign service and. And basically, it is accessible to, as you can see, (laughs) a BU student um, who this many years later is here. Um, I think that, you know, if you, I used to tell people when I was recruiting that, you know, think about what would give you, what would make you more competitive in those 13 dimensions. And it's not necessarily study abroad. It it, it could be, um, it could be, and it's not even necessarily international service. Sure, the Peace Corps would give you a lot of great experience along those lines, but so would AmeriCorps. Um, you know, think about if you're, if you're, if your goal in, in in striving for the foreign service is to demonstrate that we can put you someplace where you don't belong and you can figure it out, well, then think about things that you could do in your life, uh, like going to teach in a place that's that's not where you're from, or you know, being an RA on a with a in a on a in a, in a, in a university in your university where you have a diverse uh, set of of students who are living there, um, and, and exercise those skills, exercise those sc- skills of adaptability. And and objectivity and good government uh, and, uh, and good judgment, uh, so that you can uh, be competitive for this career. I also told those students, and I used to say this on a on a regular basis when I was recruiting, is that I've had fun in the foreign service almost. Every single day for going on pretty soon, 31 years. So it's, um, you know, it's a a, a deeply rewarding career to serve your government. It's a way of um, it's a way of seeing countries overseas that you never do as a tourist or even as a long term resident um, of a country. Um, And I felt really privileged all these years.
0: You had highlighted some of the exciting things that are happening in the African union, but what about you personally uh, with your career? When you think about the next decade ahead, I, you know, I made a joke about you writing a book. I certainly think that you could write a really interesting one, but what's coming up for you. Can you, can you share that with us?
1: Um, Well, first of all, you know, uh, I don't know about writing a book, but, you know, one of the things that that foreign service officers do is, is effectively tell stories. We tell stories to um, our foreign audience about what the United States thinks about X, Y, and Z. And then we explain uh, what it is that that country thinks to the audience of the United States government back home that happens to have an interest in that. So I think that we're we're, we're kind of natural writers and storytellers. Um, so um, the, the foreign service is a little bit like the U.S. military in the sense that you have have to keep being promoted, or eventually you leave. Uh, you know, so um, uh, uh, I'm in the senior foreign service, um, and in uh, there are four ranks of the senior foreign service. I'm at the second one, and and uh, that particular promotion would expire in 2022 if I am not again promoted. Which you know, I mean, you're getting kind of nosebleed level, so that's not necessarily all that likely or um, uh, likely to happen. And and I've already been doing this for 31 years, so at this point, I'm very happy um, in being the ambassador to the. African Union. And um, I would contemplate doing one more tour overseas, uh, but that's up to sort of the assignment gods. And it's, it's too early in the piece to see which way that will go. Uh, but I'm looking towards the, the end of my service, probably within a single digit number of years. Um, and then, you know, hopefully I'll be, I'll be I, well, I know that I will retire to my home in Worcester, Massachusetts, and uh, hopefully get to interact with uh, more BU students about what sort of path that they could find.
0: Well, Madam Ambassador, it's really an honor for me to be able to hear your story and share it with our alumni. It's, uh, it's been a real treat talking with you today. Thank you so much for carving time out of what I can only assume is an incredibly busy schedule.
1: It's my pleasure. And remember, careers.state.gov.
0: We'll be sure to include that in the uh, episode notes as well. <laughs> thanks again.
1: Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: My thanks again to Ambassador Leonard for joining me on Proud to BU. As a BU alum myself, I'm thankful for the work that she's doing around the world. Career path is hard for me to wrap my head around, but it's always great to hear our guests talk about how the time they spent at BU inspired them to make a difference. Thanks again for listening to the Proud to Be You podcast. If you like what we're doing, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review Proud to Be You wherever you download your episodes. I'm Jeff Murphy, and no matter where your path takes you, be proud to be you. The Proud to Be You podcast is produced by Boston University Alumni Relations. Our theme is from Jump and APM Music. To learn more about Proud to Be You, visit bu.edu alumni podcast.